to the Cinematologist podcast. I'm Neil Fox. And joining me as always is Dario Linares. Hello, Dario. Hello, Neil. Great to see you and, and talk to you again. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Yeah, it's a busy time uh, down uh, Falmouth with the uh, the grades and the final bits of marking all going through. But So it's been a busy week of collecting all the information from different markers and second marking and stuff. But it's, I like that week, you know, where it starts, you start to see the shape of the cohort and yeah. So you really get a sense of the the achievement of the students, and it's been a it's been a busy week, but a fun week. What about you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm trying very consciously not to shout this week because, um, as before we came on, we were just having issues with mics, which is a theme I think of today's show. If we consider what comes up later on, but we'll uh, we'll talk about that later. But yeah, no, I'm 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 good. Um, there's actually a little bit of a break for us before the next round of marking comes in, and. I've got two pieces of work to submit to articles, both on podcasting, that are due for the end of the month. And I'm just really trying desperately to to get them off the desk. And then, because I think June is just going to be a lot of marking and admin. But it's good because um, I'm doing um, work that's almost sort of taking me back to my sort of PhD process, really, in terms of, of, of reading a lot of stuff and then trying to synthesize it into an argument. And it's some of it's quite new actually so it's interesting then trying to think through new new theoretical material in the light of podcasting which it, it wouldn't ordinarily fit towards you know obviously if you, I mean the the work I'm doing is on the philosophy of technology and there isn't really anything written about that as pertaining to podcasting directly so it's interesting stuff really yeah it sounds it I look forward to to reading that uh, when it lands hopefully later on this year I guess Hope so, yeah. Hope so. We'll see, because I mean, deadlines are all kind of a bit up in the air, aren't they? But um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a funny one now. I think people, hopefully, people are publications and stuff are giving academics a little bit of leeway. I mean, I know on on Twitter there's been a lot of discussion around female academics. Their their submissions have plummeted, and male academics haven't. So there's clearly a kind of gender based stratification of of <laughs> whatever the, whatever the reasons are, I mean, we can all guess that it's to do with housekeeping and teaching kids and the the way that those kinds of roles have have gone into sort of maybe gender stereotypical positions and that's affecting female academics. But and I've heard some really you know terrible stories about that. But I mean, you know, you would hope that you would hope that academic publishers will be quite you know forgiving in that sense. Hope so, yeah. It's uh, it is interesting. Beth and I were talking about that, and uh, you know, because I've been very productive um, in this lockdown, which is nice, uh, but not at the expense of my wife, who's also been very, very busy uh, working and doing lots of lots of different things. Um, but uh, for me, it was just having the the extra childcare responsibility and house stuff um, has meant that. <laughs> the the online work during the day in terms of work hours is what's what's actually had to be scrapped you know because just haven't been able to sit in front of my computer for seven hours as as i'm sure my institution would like me to do kind of being on (laughs) um because there's been other responsibilities but despite that there's still been much more headspace to to think and write and do to do things you know and no traveling and what we were saying this morning is what's interesting is there's no there's no losing an hour a day just from being stopped by people going between rooms, grabbing a, an extra coffee, you know, sort of 
being asked a question every five minutes, it's easy, much easier to demarcate time and, and sort of do things. It's been a really interesting period of, of, of reflection in that sense. But I know from, from the, the work that Beth's been doing in terms of her, her kind of uh, Association of Death Studies group, you know, that it really has hit female academics you know uh, negatively just because like you say there's this child caring responsibilities a lot of it is caring responsibilities as well um either in the house or or kind of staying in contact with people who are not in the house you know but but can't be visited mm. um and those kind of things it's which naturally falls on on women more um uh in the main so yeah let's hope that let's hope that like all the other institutions and kind of organizations academic publishers are heeding the realities of the time and and kind of responding accordingly yeah i mean we, we can but hope I, I mean i know it isn't happening in some cases so we've got to be realistic about that and hopefully there's mm. some there's some pushback happening in that in that way but yeah so this is our episode 101 and we've got a really really good one today great interview coming up haven't we uh neil which, which you sorted out yeah very pleased to have mark cousins back on the podcast uh he was last with us for i am belfast and he's back to talk about his new 14-hour documentary, Women Make Film, which, uh, yeah, is an astonishing achievement um, any way you look at it, really. And uh, we spent, yeah, sort of about an hour last week, the three of us, you, me and Mark, talking about it. And, uh, yeah, it was a really it was a really great conversation because it's always a great conversation with Mark Cousins. It's just a pleasure to to hear him talk about film and his filmmaking process and 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 his approach and his kind of thoughts on, on cinema and uh, we were very lucky that, that we were all on the call and uh, got to spend some time together which was really nice yeah it's um it's one of the sort of advantages i think that we can now take advantage of as it were that of being in lockdown that you know remotely we can be all on calls if we if we want to be in terms of in, of, of interviews so it's just nice to have that that little bit of um, backward and forward among the three of us, and maybe we'll, we'll have a chat later on about what that what that sounded yeah. like, you know what I mean, or what yeah. it sounds like. Um, although I haven't heard it, the edit, because you obviously you're going to do that, um, you know, you're going to do that coming up. Um, but yeah, it's just a, a great, fantastic piece of you know in depth work as Mark Cousins is known for, and you know I've I've got through only the first three and a half. I mean, have you have you done the whole thing now? Yeah, I did the yeah. whole thing. Yeah, um, and uh, yeah, it's and we sort of we allude to this, and you sort of ask him about it. You know, the, the, it's a very impressionistic piece in the sense of it's 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 a vast thought exercise, and he's really interesting about how he would like it to be watched, which we which we kind of get into. Um, but yeah, there's so many so many kind of memorable images from films that I know and don't know that kind of keep coming back and the way it the way it kind of ends the last three the last three chapters the way it kind of rounds off the work is is really really thoughtful um and yeah it's it rewards the investment and I think it's going to be a really valuable piece of work for educators as much as anything else yeah, we do talk about that idea of how to watch something that's 14 hours long. And I think I'm going to try to sort of maybe break it down in, in sort of segments in a specific kind of way, maybe an hour, you know, once every two or three nights or something like that, but just keep on it. So I'm, I'm, I'm going through it in that sense. But yeah, it was just great. It was great to talk to him and, 
you know, as we say on in the interview, it's a sort of his work in in broadcasting has been a bit of a touchstone for the podcast. So it's great to great that he he comes on and talks to us. Yeah, very, very, uh, very, very honoured to have him on. So we've also got some films that we're going to talk about just beforehand. And you have been sent one of your usual batches of films from the BFI, have you not? Yeah, BFI and uh, also uh, Eureka Masters of Cinema sent ah. me a couple as well. So right. I'll deal with those ones first. They sent me the Sergio Cobucci Spaghetti Western, The Specialists, uh, from the late 60s with Johnny Halliday, the French musician wow. in the lead. And it was a film that I knew about from years ago when I did Spaghetti Cinema, the Mm -hmm. Spaghetti Western Film Festival and Conference at the University of Bedfordshire. And it was a film that we tried to get to screen for the Spaghetti Western um, event, which was the first one we did. Uh, But we couldn't get the rights to this uh, that time around. So we went, I think, instead with The Great Silence, which is Corbucci's famous Spaghetti Western from that era, with Klaus Kinski and famously homaged uh, slash ripped off by Tarantino in The Hateful Eight. Um, wonderful film, The Great Silence. And this was sort of the year after. And it's High Plains Drifter, essentially. Right. And uh, there's a really interesting interview with Austin Fisher, who I did Spaghetti Cinema with, who's a, a kind of leading authority on Spaghetti Westerns, talking about how when the film was released, this is on the, this is on the new Blu-ray, it was kind of dismissed by British critics because it was derivative and, you know, it had been seen it all before. And what he talks about is the sp- specific conditions of production at the time in Italian cinema, which is basically, yeah, it, that's exactly the point, you know, that they took a formula that worked. And in this case, it's the, the guy comes into town for revenge and plays two sides off against each other. Fistful of dollars, high planes drifter, mm-hmm. you know, kind of all those all those touchdowns, and that's what they did. It was a business model of okay, this works. Let's do it as many times as we can before it runs dry. And the film made a, a lot of money in Italy, um, and that was the approach. And it was interesting, kind of hear him talk about when you when you don't kind of take into account the fact that the production context is that it is derivative and you know, feels like a lot of other films, then you're kind of missing the point, you know, in terms of what the film's trying to do. And it just, it was an interesting kind of piece, but then also made me think again, you know, that when we talked about this on the the 100th episode, you know, that that film is not static, you know, that it is important to reconsider and go back and and think about those things. And it's a hugely enjoyable movie. You know, it's it's really funny, quite slapstick in places. Johnny Halliday's a strange presence. Um, Mm -hmm. You know where the story's going because you've seen it before, but there's a comfort in that, and the film kind of revels in that and is just kind of luxuriating in the kind of the the sex and the violence and the humor for for entertainment's sake. Um, but Kobuchi is a good filmmaker, you know, so it looks great, um, and uh, there's lots of yeah, lot, lots of fun to be had. Um, uh, well worth checking out, and there and the the 4K restoration is stunning. And there's an Alex Cox commentary on it as well. Oh, so great. If, uh, yeah, another authority on Spaghetti Westerns. And uh, I only listened to a bit just to kind of hear his voice, <laughs> you know, yeah. talking about it. Um, well worth checking out. The other one I got sent was Johnny Toe's Throwdown, um, which is a judo movie. Uh, okay. Um, as opposed to a karate a, movie. As a, Yeah, no, uh, it's very, very important that it's yep. judo. Yeah, very different. Um and uh, a big part of the storyline. And he's a, a Hong Kong filmmaker that I've seen bits of 
it's hugely prolific. Okay. Um, but uh, again, just the chance to to see something a bit different, and it was it was fine. You know, it was it was okay. Um, I'm not a big, and it kind of, watching it was interesting because I was like, this is it's like a fast version of Bloodsport or No Retreat, No Surrender. You know, it's it's all built around judo fight scenes. One great judo kind of gang fight scene where loads of different criminals and kind of judo masters and stuff fight in this street outside a club but they just do judo and it's so odd you know that there's this big fight scene where you'd expect knives and guns and you know all bets are off but it's kind of strict judo rules it's very weird but 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 really good um and a a kind of a nice story but the reason i wanted to see it is because it's the title card at the end is it's uh, Johnny Toe's salute to uh, uh, Kira Kurosawa. Okay. It's kind of his tribute to Kurosawa. But it's a tribute to Kurosawa's urban movies. So uh, Stray Dog, uh, Bad Sleep Well, Drunken um, Drunken Angel, rather than the samurai movies. Right. You know, so these kind of fringe characters in, you know, sort of low-level crime, kind of just getting by settings in um, in the city, which is... It's kind of nice to to sort of see an homage to Kurosawa that is not um, yeah Seven Samurai or... not Seven Samurai yeah so if you like judo and you want to kind of flash back to Eric Roberts in the best of the best or something like that then uh, <laughs> it's well worth checking out but uh, yeah not my not my um... I thought you were going to say if you were going to flash back to Steven Seagal and I was like nah I'll give that one a miss <laughs> it's better than that yeah okay you know because it's kind of it's it's I think if it's a curiosity in terms of just the martial arts, you know, like how all the characters are very, very specifically judo yeah. fighters, you know, and yeah, how much yeah. the judo creed is at the heart of it. Yeah, um, yeah a, a, an interesting movie. It's funny how a lot of martial arts films, in the narrative, there is some, comp- there is like an antagonism between different styles of of martial arts, isn't there? It's a real sort of big thing in the in the narratives of these films, and it is in this as yeah, well. You yeah, know, yeah. like can I? how he's adapted it and how he can be beat and how you can get the move to beat the move, you know, yeah, it's, like, yeah. Yeah, it's it's very intricate and very important. All that it's, you know, the dojos and things like that. So it kind of reminds you a lot of the Bruce Lee mm. movies as well, you know, yeah, like yeah. the different dojos kind of um, uh, competing uh, for, yeah. for primacy and stuff. Yeah. Um, a good, a good movie for lockdown. Definitely. You know, right. a good time passer. Um, yeah. So, we we both got sent the other one, which was uh, from the BFI. Yes, so the uh, the film that we both got was Flavor of Green Tea Over Rice, which is uh, an Ozu an Ozu classic for sure. And to me, it gets to masterpiece level. Although you know, it's like half of his output is basically masterpieces, so it, it sort of defeats the object of the. I, I just thought this was this was great. I hadn't seen it before. It kind of it comes a little bit earlier, doesn't it? Than than is sort of what is generally recognised as his, you know, top period. If we're talking about you know uh, late spring and uh, Tokyo Story and all that stuff, but this is uh, it's, it's it's familiar stuff in terms of a, a t- domestic drama and shifting social mores in in post war Japan. There's this um, wealthy middle aged cu- couple who kind of got, don't get along. They stay apart. Yeah. The wife is is kind of hanging out with her friends and the the. The, the husband is going to work and it's all about their, how they're, you know, they're sort of tired of each other. And then there's the sort of parallel story of, of, a, of a, the, their niece who comes in and out of the story 
who's who her mother is trying to marry her off to some guy she's never seen. So there's this whole sort of story about arranged married marriage. But it's it's interesting because it's you could probably there's probably something written on the progression of Ozu's work and how it gets to be this sort of you know bittersweet mono no oari you know this contemplative uh, type of style that comes from Japanese mythology and literature and all that kind of stuff. But this is I, I felt that this was kind of a little bit westernized in a way. I wondered if he'd if he'd either I don't know himself sort of try to be co- consciously um, riffing off some of the the, the the sort of styles and forms and even tone of American post-war sort of comedy in a way, sort of uh, comedy of mar- manners type stuff. Because there, there, it is funny in places and you, f- you forget that about Ozu, you know what I mean? Because it's almost about, about this sort of contemplative and even sort of maybe quite depressing idea of, of, of domestic life really. But the the melodrama early on is definitely played. The marital strife in it is definitely played for laughs, and it's also interesting. I thought more fluid in in sort of the camera work than some of his his later work. And you know, you've got these exterior shots, and there's a shot on trains, there's a shot in the airport. There's this amazing scene, a, a, a velodrome. There's this cycle race that the 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 they go and they go and watch, and there's quite a bit of you know footage of that sort of going round and round in circles. These cycles, um, but it becomes more like what you'd kind of call classic o- Ozu in the middle at the end. And there's this amazing scene around the dim- dinner table where the couple kind of really talk to each other properly for the first time in the movie. And it's almost like that universal theme of how much do you know about the person that you're with, what they really think and what they really feel. And all you can see is that the, their, their way of behaving is not measuring up to what you want. And it and it it really sort of comes together, I think, later on in the in in the movie as a as a piece that you could recognise as as fitting in with what Ozu's concerns are. But just yeah, just just beautifully done. Yes, I concur. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely loved it. It was it, I I know what you mean in terms of the the westernness. There was there was a real kind of quick fire patter, particularly to the mm. to the women when they were together, uh, which yeah, kind yeah. of a Lou Bitch kind of Preston Sturges kind of feel to it. The filmmaker it reminded me most of I was Noah Baumbach. In terms oh, really? Of, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, just in terms of like how how modern it felt in terms of the the preoccupations of kind of middle class married people and the ennui and the 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 kind of the the crankiness, yeah. um, the squabbles. You know, it was really interesting and like you say, kind of felt much more much more kind of quick fire which is but for ozu um which was really really interesting um and yeah that the kind of the contemplative stuff feels like it's kind of in there being sort of formulated particularly there's a really yeah there's a scene where the husband goes away Mm. to uruguay and the wife who's kind of left and not said where she's gone and kind of ignores his telegram to come back comes back and has missed his flight and he's kind of gone and there's this really really sad sequence of the house mm. the kind of the shots around the the he- the house where she's in it and all these empty rooms that feels very yeah contemplative and it's really it's really sad you just because that's where you feel the rift in the marriage you know really beautifully delivered um, and then like you say there's that amazing sequence where they're kind of talking 
uh, when he comes back over dinner, which is fantastic. Um, and it was interesting because as modern as it feels in terms of their arranged marriage, you know, that they are they are a couple that were mm-hmm. that were kind of put together. Uh, and then that is kind of married in the young the young uh, niece's story as she's kind of getting put together. And then the overwhelming sort of message at the end is that marriage is reliability and it's kind of comfort and it's it's a kind of closeness of, you know, kind of un, unassuming proportions, which feels very conservative. Yeah. Um, but but weirdly watching it in the time, you know, kind of feels like a, a you know, a kind of a plea for simplicity and a plea for respect and a plea for yeah. let's just let's just kind of look at each other and get on the same page, which which made it feel very pertinent to now um but yeah just a a beautiful movie and i loved uh that they were talking in the um it's kind of it, it's one of those films where you know the the idiocy of people saying oh tarantino's characters talk about the pleasures of pop culture you know where and this film opens like you say in it with a car ride where they're talking about the the pleasures of jean marais yeah you know kind of cocteau's uh, actor um yeah. from like beauty and the beast and and, and orfe and i was like it was so, so wonderful to just have these two women talking about um, movies, yeah. you know, and going to the cinema on their own and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, just a reminder of how, how, yeah, it, he did make a lot of really, really great movies. But in every frame and in every scene of this, it's just there's so much to enjoy. Like you just it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really, really, uh, really, really great movie. It really whets the appetite for the, the BFI Japan season. Does it not? I mean, it great that that's coming up now. Yeah, so this is one of the first releases uh, to coincide with what was intended as a as a many month kind of year long cultural uh, exchange as part of the Japanese Year of Culture to coincide with the Olympics. And yeah, a lot of that has been postponed or curtailed by the current situation. Um, but the releases are mm. still going ahead, and you know, as in in our role as kind of one of the partners of the those national seasons we we, sort of, we were in talks with a lot of different organizations about doing some events which we shall have to see um yeah. but it is exciting because it's 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 a country that, whose cinematic riches are vast and, oh. and so diverse so yeah it's exciting to be able to to revisit revisit those wares again yeah and, and a real opportunity i think to sort of see some of the the work by kurosawa and um uh, Mitsuguchi, who's my favourite of the Japanese directors, and, and Ozu, some of the stuff that maybe you don't see first of all, and this was obviously nice because I hadn't seen that before, but also I'm really looking forward to seeing work by Konichikawa and, and Mikio Narus as well. Yeah. Because I just don't know anything about them really at all. And it's, you know, it's one of the things we sort of talk about later on in this show with Mark is that idea of, of just making yourself stop talking about the same films over and over again or just that being the default setting, you know what I mean? What's the classical this? What's the classical that? And it's, you know, getting past the the Kurosawa um, Ozu Misaguchi axis is one of my aims for this season. <laughs> A very worthy aim. And uh, I support you in your, in your quest. Yeah, absolutely looking forward to... Um, it was one of those ones when I was at the development day for the BFI where they were... And I thought, oh yeah, we, we can talk about this. We can talk about this, you know. And you just realise how many, how many filmmakers um, across the ages have kind of come out of out of Japan. It's it's quite astonishing, uh, and very exciting. Um, one of the things I wanted to ask is like, you know, it's 
this idea of a national cinema is kind of, uh, you know, not, not necessarily one we support in terms of, you know, the idea that there is a, a particular filmmaking that represents a country. But I wonder, you know, if you kind of had an awareness about any countries where you, you're regularly drawn back to the cinema and the filmmakers that they offer. I know, imagine, I imagine France is probably quite high on your, your list. Yeah. Yeah, I think probably France and Japan would be the, the, the two big ones, I think. I, I mean, the cinema of South America, very much so. I mean, I'm half Spanish, so I'm always got sort of one eye on, on Spanish cinema. But it's interesting with somebody like Almodovar, is he really, you know, he's not, I don't think he's really considered in in a kind of framework of Spanish national cinema as much as other filmmakers are, because he's, again, I don't want to say something, because I might get bitten down by all the people who know more about this than I do, but I don't think he's particularly revered or loved in a, mm. you know, in a in a fundamental way. Almodovar in Spain yeah. is what I'm saying. He's more of a kind of part of this international scene, really. But yeah, just sort of, Filmmakers of South America, going all the way back to back to the uh, third cinema development in the sort of sixties and seventies, and that because I learned a lot and read a lot about that in in the way it was framed in opposition to kind of uh, American and also art house cinema. So you know, first cinema being Hollywood, second cinema being Euro- European art house tradition, and the idea that neither of those can actually fulfill the potential of a political cinema to represent the identities of uh, what you would call, you know, third world countries. But obviously they want to call it third third cinema because it's trying to use that term against itself in a way. So, you know, that those kinds of, uh, that, that, that area of film, again, that's more, that's not a national cinema though, is it? So all of these terms are quite difficult really. Yeah, no, just curious, you know, because um, yeah, like, like kind of, it did make me think, yeah, J- Japanese cinema is, but I don't want to sort of say it like an expert, but you know, what I mean yeah. is like that I'm interested when like on movie, a film from Japan comes up. Um, but, but I would say that particularly the last couple of years, it's been a, Iran and Chile for me, you know, like yeah, yeah, when yeah, a kind yeah. of a festival or, you know, like I'm interested in, in those places in terms of their yeah. cinema uh, representations. Um, and this sort of made me think about yeah. that. Yeah, Iran's a big one for me as well, with with Panahi and and uh, Kiristami and everyone, and Manny Akbari as well, who who uh, Mark is a good friend of. Indeed. Well, on that note, should we get into uh, our chat with Mark about uh, his work? So this is uh, Dario and me and Mark Cousins talking about women make film. Most films have been directed by men. Most of the recognized so-called movie classics were directed by men. For 13 decades and on all six filmmaking continents, thousands of women have been directing films too. Some of the best films. What movies did they make? What techniques did they use? What can we learn about cinema from them? Form and content, violence and tenderness, love and loss. We have seen the world. Hundreds of great examples of cinema. 14 hours on the road. The films we looked at have far more female protagonists. Far more women at the center of the movies. Hooray for that. 
Women make movies, great movies. They've done so since the birth of cinema. They've helped define the anarchic, androgynous rectangle. The movie screen. There are surprises in what follows. Let's start at the beginning. Thank you very much for joining us today on The Cinematologist, Mark. It's really lovely to talk to you. Pleasure. Thank you. Uh, the The Women Make Film project is a, it's a huge project, um, a really mm -hmm. beautiful kind of tapestry of filmmaking. And in some of the kind of things that you've written, particularly for Sight and Sound, you sort of mentioned some of the the filmmakers that kind of first got you into well not into women filmmakers but kind of made you aware i wonder if you if you could just we could just start there with your kind of recollections of the first women filmmakers that you really kind of took a shine to well you know what's interesting you before you become aware of stuff you just see films and you like them you know a lot of people for example saw and loved wayne's world and only years later did they realize it was directed by a woman um, so probably uh, I was just seeing and loving films but for many people the first time I became aware that the first time it was marketed as a female director that I was aware of was Jane Campion uh, or, or maybe Catherine Bigelow and so those the, the names that come up most when we talk about this stuff are Campion, Bigelow, Varda they are the three that most people now seem to know. And so, yeah, that's where my that, that's where I first became aware in the sort of early 90s of the woman behind the camera. Great. Um, and in, in terms of the project itself, obviously, you know, you, you're a guy who's got a, an encyclopedic knowledge of films um, and famous <laughs> for that. But um, how many fi films, you know, were you actually seeing for the project, would you say, rather than film, you know, the... the the list of films that you probably had mm -hmm. in your mind that you wanted to include? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was a matter, Dario, of, of plugging gaps. You know, I'm, I'm very interested in what I don't yeah. know. I think my ignorance is my best friend in a way, you know. So I could, I could probably have talked about most of the French filmmakers and the Iranian filmmakers, but I hadn't seen any female Sri Lankan filmmakers, for example. I knew West Africa a bit, but I didn't know Latin America so well. And so... You know, I just it was almost like getting a big map, looking at the bits of the world where I didn't know about the female directors and then informing yeah. myself. And I think it's, you know, it's not availability isn't the issue. Uh, it's about knowing, having the desire to look and assuming that it's out there. Yeah. You know, I've got on my arm here, um, I've got a tattoo of Marie Curie and I, um, I, she, you know, she assumed that radium was out there. She just nobody had found it yet. And that I, I studied science, you know, and so I think my background helped me to think, OK, what is out there that we that I haven't seen? What planets have we not discovered yeah. yet? And there must have been uh, almost a conscious um, awareness or need to, to sort of ditch your preconceptions about what should be in or out because obviously the, the filmmakers yes. and the films you're familiar with, you need to make room for the ones that you don't, as you've just sort of said. Yeah, there are lots of preconceptions in the film world. Yeah. You know, the sort of fanboy world is full <laughs> of them, I would say. You know, particularly about high and low, high 
high culture and low culture art films and popular cinema mm. the number of times i've been asked what is your guilty pleasure you know and it comes from quite a sort of bourgeois perspective you know there's official culture and then there's the stuff that's fun but isn't so intellectually nourishing you know i don't think i've ever really had that distinction and there are other misconceptions or preconceptions you know that from you know from the right wing of the political spectrum you, you have ideas about women that women are homemakers that they're good mothers you know the archetypes of madonna and prostitute etc you know and from the left wing from the liberal perspective we have other um stereotypes or preconceptions you know that women are empaths you know that they are uh, better at multitasking yeah. you know and and you have to ditch all that and look just with an open mind and think, actually watch thousands of films directed by women and look for the evidence. What type of films did they make? Is there such a thing as a female gaze? Are there certain subjects that dominate more than others? Are there certain genres that women are attracted to? And the overall answer is <laughs> no. Great. Yeah, the, the, definitely want to come back to some of that that stuff as we go through. Um, the, were you surprised that at, at which films kind of recurred? You know, I guess some that you were kind of expecting to come up quite a lot throughout the chapters. But were, were there any sort of surprises where you kept being drawn back to certain films that had so many things that you weren't necessarily aware of? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I... I... I'm very attracted to filmmakers who make almost good standalone scenes and good visual scenes, you know. So a f uh, the French fil filmmaker Lucille Hadzilahilovic, for example, you know, have used Innocence and Evolution, a few of her films. She worked with Gaspar Noé, you know, and he gets a lot of attention. I think he's very interesting, but her films are as daring. When I first started getting into this subject, Agnes Varda still wasn't enough in the conversation and you could meet people. I remember people saying, oh, I've never seen an Agnes Varda film. People who would be ashamed to admit that they hadn't seen a Scorsese film <laughs> would happily say that. But that's changed in the last decade or so, you know. And so she's in the conversation now, which is great. But there, she, there's a lot of Agnes Varda in this. But a filmmaker like um, from Japan, Kinyo Tanaka, you know, who was known as a great actor in the classic Italian in Japanese films, but she recurs a lot because I think she was just a great technician. She was a great shaper of scenes. She was a great visual thinker. Yeah, actually, I, I wanted to mention uh, Kinyo Tanaka because um, you know I was, I, I was wondering whether you think the this film will continue the work of pointing out just how ideologically constructed the the accepted film canon is. And it's interesting in the first in the first section, quite early on, you sort of problematize the idea of uh, the notion of using Lynchian or Hitchcockian as a term, and yeah. like it'd be yeah. <laughs> it would be really easy to sort of compare Tanaka to Ozu, for example. But then you do later on, you do use Goddard and Hitchcock as as markers. So is there a kind of there's always a difficulty, isn't there, of the the canonical lexicon creeping in and its patriarchal kind of dimensions? Yeah, well, I don't think it's patriarchal to call somebody Lynchian, right. you know, because Lynch, the great, uh, you know, if you think about the language of cinema, he's got a distinct language of cinema. Sure. But yeah, you're right, Dario. I was reluctant to call people Wellsian or Lynchian, you know, be but because you, it seems a bit of a shame to compare them, these great filmmakers to men, mm. you know, but let's, let's admit it. We're talking about a common language of cinema that we all speak. And this film... 
tries to be androgynous, it tries to have an androgynous gaze, you know, and I think, and therefore, I wasn't too troubled. And also, I take, I sort of think, by any means necessary, if we if we can get people watching Kira Muratova films by comparing her to David Lynch, I think, bring it on. Right. Uh, and then uh, the, the, there comes a point once these people are in the canon, once enough people in film culture have seen the great films of Kira Muratova, then the word Muratovan can become part of our everyday conversation. You know, and uh, so I think I'm quite pragmatic about that. You know, yeah. try to give also also, you know, to be generous to the people who haven't seen the work of Muratova and crucially, crucially, not to make people feeling feel guilty that they haven't seen Kino and Tanaka films films or Kira Muratova films or whatever, to help them, give them sort of a handrail, as it were, uh, a way into these directors who they haven't heard of, because we all feel overwhelmed. There's so much out there. There's so, much, mm. so many There's so many films to watch that it's it's okay to give a bit of a handrail at times. Yeah, yeah. Neil? The, uh, you've referred to it in uh, as, as a kind of film school, um, to be seen yes. as a film school, and... and and sort of written about how you know hope this stuff kind of is increasingly taught. What what do you think the role of film schools are in kind of in addressing the 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 kind of the disparities and also the kind of the, the politics mm-hmm. there where we're just trying to get everyone on the on the same on the same level in terms of their you know, people's understanding. Can I be honest? Yeah. Uh, I, I you know I wish film schools and film history courses were ahead of the curve. Um, but I don't always feel that they have. They are. I mean, lots of people having watched women make film have come came up to me and say, "Well, you know, I spent a lot of money on a film degree, and I wasn't taught about Binka Zelyaskova. I wasn't taught about Malvina Ursiano. I was not taught about Janfisa Keiko. These f- unfamiliar names to most people. So I think film history courses, in particular, have some catching up to do. But that's okay because the people teaching those courses didn't off themselves necessarily get taught about these great filmmakers so if we can all say we're all to blame a little bit we're all at fault a little bit you know we haven't been curious enough we didn't catch up you know people who were teaching in the 50s and 60s for example just couldn't see this stuff but for more than a decade now a lot of these films have been available on youtube so we all have to fess up and say We've been behind the curve, but it's never too late. And we can rejig the curricula in our academies and rejig the the list of films that are shown in our practical film courses. Yeah, because I just remember thinking back to my degree. And when I was watching it, I was thinking in the the late 90s, you know, and I can't can't remember being taught female filmmakers in any context other than experimental film, you know, which is almost like a kind of ghetto where it's like, you know, and And it's really interesting. And you raise an interesting point there, Neil. I know this is a bit of a sideline, but in terms of experimental film, I've encountered a lot the attitude that uh, women make marginal cinema, i.e. experimental and aesthetically complex, like, you know, take Chantal Ackerman, for example. And yes, there are lots of women, Maya Deren, who have done that. But there's a difference between marginal, difference between marginal and marginalized. And marginalized means pushed to one side. But aesthetically, in terms of the storytelling, the genres, a lot of these women were making quite mainstream films and also very big box office films some of these people who we haven't heard of like Binka Zelyaskova or Edith Kalmar 
they were they were ringing the box office bell again and again. So they were marginalised, but not marginal, I would say. Do, do you think that this conversation that we're just having there, does that feed into your the sort of how-to approach, the, the focus on the craft rather than, you know, what is usually or often the go-to, you know, what is this female filmmaker saying about women? Because it's clearly that was a, a conscious thing in terms of the, the process, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a filmmaker, and so I ask filmmaker type questions, you know. I get pretty impatient with the generalizations you know the kind of what what sort of stories are women trying to tell because women are trying to tell every type of story you know i know i'm lucky enough to know a lot of the great female filmmakers of today and they really don't want to be asked too much you know some of them Chantal Ackerman wanted to talk about her point of view as a woman looking at the world but Mm. lots of Lynn Ramsey doesn't particularly you know and uh, Sally Potter doesn't I don't think and um, and there's an old TV program on YouTube where Sally Potter talks to Wendy Toy two great British filmmakers and they touch on this subject when I was at university uh, there were courses on literature and then women's literature and inevitably, I think that created a kind of two-tier strata or a, a sense, a, a sort of visual, imaginative sense of of mainstream and edge. And all of that is problematic for me, you know. So yeah. I, th- I didn't really want to buy into that kind of categorization. I just wanted to be gender neutral. And when, of course, when you think of the great voiceover artists that I got to work with on this film, Tilda Swinton, you know, an icon of androgyny, Jane Fonda, uh, Deborah Winger, you know, the sort of the boy girl, that kind of deep male type voice, you know, Ajo Ando, Sharmila Tagore, who challenged gender stereotypes in India again and again, they had all the same attitude. Yeah, that's really fascinating. It, bring, it brings me on to this idea of voice because, I mean, one of the great moments, you know, there's so many great films and stuff, but then when when the first voice shift happens, it moves from, from Tilda Swinton to Jane Fonda. It completely <laughs> t- changes the tone of the, of the film, yes, talking about does. tone. So I was just wondering, you know, in terms of voice and in terms of the sort of script development and, and that kind of thing and working with the, these these great women, it, whose, whose voice is it? Is it yours? Is there a sort of androgynous narrator you have in mind, yeah, that kind of thing? Yeah, it's androgynous, you know. I mean, I, I mean, I hate gender stereotypes. I wrote the script and then worked out with the women or, or you know who would who would like to do which part i thought you know i definitely want to give jane fonda a section on work you know because right. she's been brilliant on that kerry fox bodies because she's been brilliant on that etc you know um and but you know hearing them perform in rather different ways kerry fox is very big and loud and confident and kiwi and tandy newton uh, tandy yeah uh, her voice goes so close to the microphone you know she's almost whispering yeah you know and i think and jane fonda has got this confident voice a voice of you know several generations now you know and that kind of multivocal thing really appealed and also, yeah. you know, it was clear, it was very important to me to show that this was a world story, a global story. We were not tr- telling an Anglo-Atlanticist story. We were not telling a story about art cinema. We were really trying to look at what was happening around the world. And that's why it was very nice to get different voices from different places. Yeah, no, that's definitely true. And um, yeah, and and just, just another one from me, the... Uh, 
because we're doing a podcast, it would behoove me, you know, we're not, I have to ask you, how come you, there was no section on sound specifically? Yes, I know. I know. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I'm, 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 my hearing isn't great for us, you know, so that's, I've got a problem in, in my hearing. I don't hear all that well. So sound has never quite, I've never understood it as much. Um, right. I, I, I've always been good at the image and less good at sound you know also i mean i have to say that the director doesn't control the sound necessarily as much you know there's a whole team of people who do that and often sure. the film director doesn't have as much say on that you know you could do a whole nother film on sound you could do a whole nother film on screenwriting as well yeah no that's interesting so keeping it on the the focus of the directors uh there there's a, a few kind of things that sort of jumped out watching it um that I sort of I'd like to ask you about in terms of specific filmmakers, and the first one is Varda that you sort of mentioned there. You know, was she? She feels like a touchstone for the for the whole project. You know, because yeah. her work crosses every form that you're talking about. You know, experimental, documentary, narrative, short. Um, was that something that you kind of knew going in, or you know, was it just something that just became obvious that she was going to recur so much? I think um, for me, one of the central interest for me is innovation you know who refreshes the language of cinema and I think very few people of our times did so more than Agnes Varda you know she did as much as her French colleagues who were more praised for doing the same thing you know so that's why she's in there so much you know the fact that when you look at tracking shots she she thought about tracking shots more than most of her colleagues her lovely phrase cine écriture you know cinema writing you know so she was an a natural impulsive innovator and that really appeals to me and know, obviously and, it was the, the shift of video you know she's kind of still not given enough credit for you know discovering language of digital form yeah. as much as film yeah. form you know yeah i mean there's a there's a desire there's a will to form in varda a desire to make to keep making and keep making, which I just think is so life-affirming. So she is, she is a, a touchstone. Uh, it's, it was great to see lots of Antonia Bird in there. Is she a filmmaker who still hasn't had her due? You know, like Yes, I think yeah. so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I was lucky enough to know Antonia, and I had a production company for a long time with Antonia Bird, and she was not given her due. You know, she had the realist instincts of the British realist filmmakers, um, but she also was, I would say, you know, Latin American in some ways, you know. Antonia Bird's work was very highly regarded in Brazil, and I think for good reason. Those traditions in Latin American film culture around melodrama and the telenovela and in the expressivity, you know, the heightened passioned emotion, Antonia had all that. Antonia was not a minimalist, you know, and I think that's why she, she found it hard to get funding sometime because the smart money in the film industry went to slow cinema and minimalism and Antonia Bird was a maximalist. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, why she was undervalued and continued to be undervalued. One of the one of the great kind of experiences of watching the film is 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 kind of the the learning. You talk about it in the video essay in terms of the people just kind of scribbling notes and um, yes. and that kind of thing. But 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 part of the, the thrill of it was was kind of connecting with films that you are already you know kind of in love with and close to so for an example like Lourdes the Jessica Hauser film which I only watched recently but was it an absolute revelation I just found it incredibly beautiful and and every time it popped up in the film it, it just it just felt kind of good and warm that 
it was being <laughs> it was being kind of put on this stage and, and kind of discussed in this way um so i wondered if you know if how you kind of think about the film the in terms of the experience because you know we sort of want to talk a bit about that you know is it is, is it as much a kind of shared experience and a shared universe that you're hoping to to create as well as kind of bringing people to attention if that makes any sense yes very much very much so you know we're all in this together you know and i don't see myself as a a provider of information i see myself as a seeker of information so i'm sitting with everybody else looking up at the screen discovering these films and that's why that's the way i try to write as well i never write the script in advance it always comes as i watch the image but to answer your to to refer to something that you imply also neil yes i wanted to mix the unfamiliar with the familiar and so you like that film lured and so do i but i wanted to drop in every now and again very familiar films Tom Hanks and Big or you know, uh, 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 Wayne's World or something really major just um, as a bit of reassurance or a kind of recognition a smile on your face thinking yeah I'm not totally lost here um, and I think that's really pleasurable you know it's like it's like driving through the fog and suddenly the fog clears for a moment and you see something oh there's that hill that I recognise and then you're back in the fog both both are pleasure. The labyrinth is pleasurable, but then escaping from it is as well. So you, that's just the pleasure of storytelling. Also, I have to say, you know, the editing, let's say, for example, we edit together a film clip of Catherine Bigelow with some, a, a moment from the silent, a silent film by Alice Guy Blaché. Those kind of connections are fun when it when you can see that these two women working decades apart in very different genres were doing the same thing having the same visual thought so yeah i wanted to ask you a question that you're going to be asked i think probably by everyone but try to figure out a way of doing it in a different way and that is the idea of this project being shepherded by a man and the the sort of politics of that but you know, is that is that a, a thing that has been in your mind or was in your mind and, and you were prepared for it? And, and you know, is it something that you really, you know, had to think about clearly about what your answer was going to be to that question? Yes, uh, every man who's interviewed me has asked that and only a few, and only a few <laughs> of the women. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I mean, we knew that this would be an issue, uh, something of an issue, the fact that I'm a man. Um, and, you know, I... I would rather this was made by a woman as well, you know, except that's patronizing, you know, because lots of women women would be rubbish at making this because they don't have the knowledge or the filmmaking skills, you know. So, again, we don't want to generalize. Here's my position, you know, I really started becoming interested in this subject around about the late 90s. And so it's been two decades now. And I've, to be honest, you know, I'm so inspired by, you know, all the all the people who went before me, all the great feminist thinkers and curators, etc. But I felt as if I, I was waiting a long time for somebody to make something like this. And even a lot of the activists, you know, who were trying to change the film industry were only talking about quite a narrow range of filmmakers, I felt, you know, and uh, Kira mm. Murateva was hardly mentioned and it was the same small 
handful of filmmakers who were being talked about. And I became, over the years, increasingly frustrated at the narrowness of the discourse. And at one point, I thought, OK, enough, I'm going to do it. What's the worst that can happen? You know, people can, you know, yell at me for being a man making a, a film about this. But as you know, having seen it, it is not about women. It is about cinema very clearly about cinema and I think that's what's liberating about it and that's what's affirming about it and the female filmmakers who have seen it a lot of them have said thank you for not talking about victimization thank you for not mentioning Harvey Weinstein thank you for not re-victimizing or re-marginalizing us so there came a point where I thought it would be perverse and counterproductive not to apply my knowledge in some form, you know, and I'm sure there are people in the world who know more about this subject than me, but I'm certainly reasonably informed in this subject. And therefore, I thought, why not? And I'm pleased to see, you know, I don't know if you've seen the review in The Guardian or Screen International, where they're taking these things on and sort of batting them away and maybe admitting, yeah, we were we approach this with um, some trepidation because it's a bloke who's directed it. But once you see it, I think you realize that the mistakes I did, we did not fall into the potholes. Does the, the road movie framework kind of lend itself to, you know, kind of really emphasising the contemplation aspect of the film? You know, it feels very meditative. It feels very, you know, melancholy in places, but also that it has a freedom, you know, that kind of, but, but it all feels rooted in that idea of the road movie. So was that, was that yes. something that you knew from the start that you wanted to, to use those signifiers? Yes. Yes. And you, I always do this. I always have the same technique. I make a list of the conventional ways of doing something and strike all those things off the list. So the conventional way to do this would be a chronology. So it's not a chronology. The conventional way would be to talk about the industry. And it's not about, I don't talk about the industry hardly at all. The conventional would be way would be to interview lots of people and there isn't a single interview in it. Uh, so yes, I thought a road movie would be simple and elegant, have lots of driving shots between the film clips. This had a number of advantages. Um, it was free almost, and we had no budget for this film at all, not a penny from any from any outside source. And so I had just been filming shots for years. And so we had all those and we bought eventually bought in some more. Um, it would... A road movie would give a sense of traveling around the world. And this had to feel like a global story. And so we see mountains and rivers and deserts and cities, etc. And that felt good. And also, after 14 hours, I wanted to arrive somewhere. I don't want to say in your podcast, if it's okay, where we arrive. But after 14 hours on the road, we arrive you, the audience realizes this all this time we've been traveling somewhere on a little pilgrimage a micro pilgrimage and we get somewhere which i think is significant uh to film history you could say it's a source of the nile as it yeah were. that's a lovely moment and it reminded me very much of patty smith um and her idea mm -hmm. of proximity and you seem someone who's really interested in the proximity and the physical and being close to the sources of these things rather than just at a distance yeah yeah it's been it's being it's being brought up Catholic, you know, you're taught the idea of the pilgrimage and, the, 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 and you know, the, the place to go and worship, you know, and, and lots of cultures get that in Mexico and China. And it's interesting, this film has sold more than anything I've ever done to China and Russia and India and all over the world. You know, actually, um, one of the few countries where it hasn't sold on TV is the United Kingdom. That's, that's really interesting. I actually wanted to pick up on that. I mean, 
do you think that this this would have kind of found a place almost back in the day you know the days when you were doing sort of movie drone would it have more of a likelihood of being screened you know on bbc2 late night or channel 4 and isn't that ironic considering this you know all of the space online that there is to put stuff and you know everything we've all the so-called availability of everything we've got yes i mean i think that's right i mean the we're hoping that one of the uk tv stations will buy it and channel or bbc have seen some of it and you know, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. But yeah, it is ironic that uh, in a time with so much bandwidth width and so much availability and so many digital channels that uh, so far no BBC broadcaster has committed to this. And we're not asking a lot of money. We're asking really very little money for a large uh, piece of work. I think it's I think it's something to do with the fact that a lot of these women are unknown. They're not familiar names. And a lot of arts coverage and cultural coverage in the UK is about people we've already heard of or people with strong connections to the UK. I don't know if that's because of a Brexit moment or something. I don't know. But uh, this is a very global story and there's a bit of United Kingdom in it. There, there are British filmmakers in there, but not loads. That's fine. I think 12. We've got very, very good British filmmakers. But, you know, because I, I mean, I'm just thrilled that this film is already having a big impact. It played as a single 14-hour event on Spanish TV. Wow. It played in cinemas in Spain. It It's had a big rollout in lockdown in Brazil. In in uh, Finland, they bought scores of films to play with it. You know, so even if in the UK it doesn't have as big an impact, you know, as a citizen of the planet, I'm just pleased that a lot of people around the world are interested in this. Yeah, and it, it's you know it's at times impressionistic. The sort of the the ideas flow constantly, so it's it's hard to keep it all in or have a an overall shape. <laughs> so it, I mean, it's interesting. Is is there an idealized experience of watching for you in terms of you know uh, people dropping in or dropping out or doing an hour at a time? I mean, there was a big furore over you know the Irishman that people couldn't sit down for three hours of that. So how, <laughs> how would you how would you suggest would be the best way of watching? Yeah, um, in if you know this is playing in some countries in cinemas. In cinemas, I think two hours at a time is pretty good. You know, it can be played. Uh, hopefully, some galleries in the future will play it. You know, like Christian Markley's The Clock or something, just in a gallery setting. But in cinema, no more than two hours at a time because there's a lot of stuff, you know. Yeah. At home, I think it's some completely different. Home is a multiverse and doesn't require us to look at one screen constantly, you know. So at home, people can watch it. They can. It can be their daily coffee break for... I don't know, 40 days if they want you know <laughs> or they can binge or they can watch it before they go to bed or i think any way any way they want and they can watch it out of sequence as well you know i know that i try to make it in a certain way and and give it a kind of tone but then you just throw it out in the world like a frisbee and hope it doesn't come back at you you know like a boomerang yeah and it was really interesting when you did include some tv in there like the, i think that the moment yeah. where the handmaid's tale comes in is quite yes. obvious, you know, and and was that uh, again another decision that you you sort of had to make? Is this film or TV? And you know, just with that, you've got things like like Top of the Lake, for example, wasn't in there, which like again, yes. for me, Top of the Lake would be more cinematic than The Handmaid's Tale, but that's yes. a, that's a subjective thing. 
No, no, I agree with that. I should have put top of the lake in there, you know, and and I didn't. You know, there's quite there's quite a lot of champions, so that's okay, you know. Yeah, but yeah. you know, I absolutely adored top of the lake. Yeah, I did, You know, it's about cinema. I love TV. I watch loads of TV. Unlike a lot of people in who work in TV, I watch a lot of TV. But it's a different form for me. It's a different language. So the few bits of of tv stuff that's in there were bits that struck me as particularly cinematic i guess but yeah you're totally right about top, top of the lake Michael. is it important to to consider tv and you know you've got lim ramsey's the swimmer in there there's a lot of margaret tate's short yeah. work you know yeah we've talked about this on the podcast before with so mayer and girish Shambo. is if if we're gonna if we're gonna use the canon as a as a as a tool in cinema then when we think about women filmmakers particularly and filmmakers from you know different parts of the world we have to get rid of the idea that cinema is a 90 minute two hour feature film that it is shorts it is music videos it is you've got Beyonce in there you know it has to expand in order to be inclusive is that is that that feels like something that was driving the project as well yeah, it's just a language, you know, it's like literature, you know, when you when you study literature, you should study poetry as well as plays, etc. And of course, also for quite for for the biggest film industry in the world, 90 minute is unusual, you know, in Indian cinema, it's closer to three hours. And so yeah, and I totally, I mean, I think there are, I think there are about 50 short films in there, and there should be more, uh, but 50 short films out of maybe I can't remember, 800 film clips or something like that, but there should be more. Definitely wanted to mix that up. There isn't enough animation in there, although, you know, some of the great animators like Caroline Leaf in there. And I love, you know, love the the way it's kind of in the different, the different sections, the different themes. And the economy section for me seemed like one where the film really gets to the heart of what makes cinema cinema. You know, this kind of manipulation of time, <laughs> the ability to collapse time so quickly um and it just feels effortless and then it that kind of reminded me that not remind but you know kind of brings to the surface that all of cinema is here and you know the the politics of the 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 film seem to be wrapped up in the content which just shows up through its sheer abundance and, and diversity the sexist notion that women's films are uncinematic you know that the the, the that, that they make a different a cinema <laughs> that's not like you say a kind of mainstream or a kind of conventional cinema and you know that mm. I loved the I love the use of Joanna Hogg's cinema in the hell section and also in the tension <laughs> section. You know, yes. bringing in associations yeah. where just kind of really collapsing these kind of sexist preconceived ideas. Oh, it's not this. You know, that the, the, there's such a, a warmth to the project in terms of the content that says, like you say, everything everything you need from cinema is here in this work, but without being overtly political. Not really a question, but yeah, yeah, I. Lo- I, I like the way you're picking up on this idea of preconceived notions, you know, because deep down in the creative process is, is the desire to remove preconceived motions or vault them, you know, uh, jump over them into a, a, an an unconceived place you know and so whether you're trying to ignore categories of male and female or ignore genre categories or ignore the way the work of Joanna Hogg is usually seen you know as a kind of critique of bourgeois life in Britain you know if you see her as of somebody who makes films about hell occasionally for example that's fun you know recategorize something and suddenly it it has a different life 
it's you know it speaks it has a different tone so i love doing that my, the greatest pleasure is sitting right at the sit in this seat where i'm talking to you now and looking at a film clip writing about it and as i write i think of another one from a very different spec bit of the movie spectrum and realize that if you put them close together like two pole, poles of a battery a spark might fly fantastic do you think that um film cultural discussion in general has moved too much towards questions of ideology rather than questions of aesthetics and you know is this film almost a sort of I don't want to say it's an intentional sort of counterbalance to that but it because its focus is so much on the craft and yes women filmmakers but the craft of women filmmakers and you know it's it's just nice to be able to settle into that and not think Who's made this film? Is it is it the right person to have made this film? I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. I haven't really thought this through, but I think in the arts world in general, we have a bit of a tendency to think of ourselves a lot, ask identity questions. Who is this person? And one of the central tenets in the arts is self-expression. If you're going to be a great filmmaker, if you're going to be a great artist in any way, you have to look inside yourself, find your story and get it out there in the world. What if that's not true? I personally think it's mm. not true. I don't think the root of creativity is self-expression. If you jump to the world of science, for example, it's a really different question that lots of scientists ask. They don't ask questions about their inner lives. They ask themselves questions about the structure of the atom or the solar system. And I think we could learn from scientists. And if we did, then we in the arts would ask fewer questions about identity and selfhood and things like this. And at, at least for some of us, that's pleasurable to get outside ourselves. Now, I know, Dario, your question was somewhat different about ideology but I think you know what I find is the starting point for a lot of discussions is who am I and what's my world view what does the world look like from where I'm mm. sitting but you know it's really good to ask the a really different question the Copernican question what if we're not the center of the world and I think that's the basis of that's the impulse to make women make yeah. film and that's why it's sort of is not crucial that it's made by a woman, I think, you know. Mm. Although, as I, as I said earlier, I would prefer that it was. <laughs> but, but what's interesting about the clips is that you, you know, that idea of not being the centre of the universe and the kind of questions that the films pose formally, yeah. but also in terms of their their content, their themes, are, are decentered from that because almost, you know, women kind of know that they're not the centre of the universe, you know, that their interest, at least the way you package the, the films is is in much broader, wider context, as well as the deeply, deeply personal. It feels like that, you know, that there is a searching, you know, kind of intent in, behind a lot of these films that's beyond just reflecting the personal experience. Because like you like you say, that the, there's, there seems to be a desire to go beyond the association of I'm a woman and that's what, you know, that's the stories that I'm going to tell. I think it's men who talk that way, to be honest. You know, I think, you know, if you're... <laughs> You know, a lot of the female filmmakers that I know, you know, are asking questions about how do I entertain? How do I create, you know, work with time and space in my films? And they're not asking questions about, as a woman, how do I see things? Some people, I, I repeat that some filmmakers certainly did do that, you know, and I, I love their work as well. But, you know, it's it's a sort of outsider's question in a way, I think, you know. So it just didn't you know, mm -hmm. bother me so much, you know, it's really practical and also 
a question of um, affirmation, I think, you know, a kind of joy in the, the language of cinema. So it's a creative question rather than an ideological one, I guess. Hmm. How, are you, uh, how are you dealing with the current situation, Mark? And what's your, your thoughts about sort of cinema going forward in the next few years? I mean, funnily enough, I mean, I know this wasn't intentional, but it's, it's, with all these hours, it's a great time to sit down and watch this thing <laughs> in its entirety. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I spend a lot of my life sitting in this edit suite where I'm talking to you now, so that hasn't changed hugely for me. My partner works in the NHS, and so she's very plugged into it all. And uh, my job is right. to put a plate of food on the table every night for her uh, at the end of her long day. Um Overall, I what I'm trying to do as usual is try to be as positive as po- possible about this and see it as an opportunity to read slightly wider than I would normally read and and watch things that I wouldn't normally have a chance to watch. I'm working harder, I think, than I have done in a long time, and I feel I'm sort of planting seeds for the future. Uh, I'm aware that there's so much tragedy and suffering around, and you know, I feel I I must say I've been sort of crying more than usual i think just you get overwhelmed but a huge huge sense of you know opportunity as well trying to keep it on that kind of positive forward thinking note really is kind of is what next you mentioned that a lot of the a lot of the films that are in the in the documentary are are kind of available on youtube um yeah but but they're not kind of readily available in the form that you they you know that no. they deserve to be um no. so i wondered you know if, if there's a kind of hope that there is a kind of concerted effort to to actually make these films available in 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 the same way that you know that they that Criterion does or Arrow or whatever you know so that so that we can see these films as as intended. Yeah, I think I I know there's a, behind the scenes there's a lot happening, and I've been I'm lucky enough to have been asked to dis, uh, discuss with a number of. Um, film institutes and uh, film releasing organizations to try and get films restored subtitled and out there and already you know uh, a number of us including me we were involved in in Albania and we got some of the Albanian films of, of Janfisa Keiko uh, restored subtitled and out there and that's the aim that's the final aim and I think more and more that's going to happen for loads of reasons and women make film will be a shoulder to that wheel yeah, I mean it's it's an amazing and beautiful project. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure to spend my marking breaks this week. That's how I watched it. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Neil. And uh, and I just wanted to say as well, uh, Mark, that 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 movie Drome and then the story of film is has really been a touchstone for the podcast. You know, it's one of the things that we go to all the oh. time. You and you wouldn't remember we actually met years ago at Leeds Met. You I came th- down there. I funny, I think I do have a memory of that, Dario. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh thank you. That's yeah, very kind yeah. of you to say, you know, because it's you know, one of the things about lockdown it feels, you know, the, the sort of work that I do, it's very, you know, marginal in some way. You feel as if you're working on your own or with a small team. So it's very nice to hear about the impact. Yeah, well, thank you for sharing the film and thank you for, yeah, spending the time with us this morning. Pleasure. Take care. You too. Russian-Ukrainian director Kira Muratova again. A stagehand in a Ukrainian theatre backs into the dangling body of an actor who has hung himself. 
the tone could be tragic. But the stagehand's words are light-hearted. Boris. Dismissive, unshocked. The glittery costume adds to the sense of the slight absurd. Then this shot on its side. Then this remarkable crane up as the body slowly slumps. And the set decor and piano music adds unexpected beauty to the tragedy and irreverence, a complex tonal recipe. So thanks once again to Mark. Always great for him to uh, take the time out to to speak to us and just yeah, just to reiterate what what a great piece of work it is. And I'm just still looking forward to to getting through the rest of it. I mean, there's, obviously we've covered a lot of that in the, in the interview, but um, I don't know. Is there anything to add in terms of the uh, the recording and how it went down and some of the things that you've reflected on afterwards, Neil? So, yeah, um, a few bits, really. Yeah, just kind of thanks to Jill Redding as well. I think it's Redding or Reading. Uh, Redding at the uh, BFI, who helped uh, facilitate the conversation with Mark uh, and set it all up. Much appreciated. Um, yeah, it was it was it was nice to do it with you um, and on uh, on video kind of, you know, where we could all sort of see each other. Um, we sort of talked quite a lot in the build up about, you know, structuring it and how it's going to work and you know kind of wondered whether it would feel like a cinematologist conversation because obviously it's much easier when the two of us are in a room doing it with with someone even if yep. the two of us are in a room and the person's not um so it was kind of curious to see how it would work but yeah really really enjoyable um thoughts it was i thought you know i thought we it was i thought it was easier to jump in um, than I thought it might be, you know, and kind of add things and move things along yeah. um, and respond to what Mark was saying than I thought, um, you know, it was, it felt very relaxed, which I was surprised about, you know, even though, even though it's quite fraught because uh, there were some technical issues in the, in the buildup, which obviously not on the recording. Um, but he's, he was, he was very relaxed and um, was happy to just kind of help make it work. And uh, yeah, it was just a really relaxed conversation, which, with all of we all of what we know about trying to do this stuff on Skype and Zoom and all these kind of stuff was was a yeah it didn't feel any of that really what about you no the same in that regard i mean yeah i was sort of panicking a little bit at, at the beginning when when basically everything that we were trying was going wrong and yeah having just written a, a sort of article on these these issues it was just coming home to me oh this is just going to this is going to sound terrible but thankfully yeah he he played it like a pro and uh, helped us out in terms of being able to tape at his end. So that was, that was really good. And, and yeah, I mean, it's always, it's an interesting one because obviously the, the kind of one of the key questions that he was asked or he's, he's going to be asked a lot about this um, pertains to us talking to him about it, as in having the three, three blokes talking about 
women in film. And I think that he, he is, his rather, um, you know, sang, sanguine's not the right word, but, but, but pragmatic approach to it was, you know, I want to talk about these filmmakers and, you know, that the, there should be no apology for wanting to talk about these filmmakers and, and him being in the position that he is to get this film made and being passionate about it, that's great. And we were we were a little bit like, do we need to get a, a female voice in to sort of almost compare our, our discussion? And we're like, no, we, we've got a... We, we, I think we, we wanted to take a leaf out of his book because I think it's, you know, the, I know we're not there yet, don't get me wrong, but the ideal must be that we should be able to talk about any filmmaker... You know what I mean? Just talk about their filmmaking. And that's what he tries to do in this, or that's what he does in this film. And not have to always reference where the filmmaker is from or what gender the filmmaker is or what what you know other identity the filmmaker represents. That must be the ideal. Now, I understand that, of course, we're not there yet. And there has to be conditions by which female filmmakers or filmmakers of colour are put to the forefront in specific contexts to be able to be talked about because... You know that space hasn't historically been there, but I don't want to get to the situation where, you know, we're we're so narrow in our sense of who can talk about what. I think that that's only going to cause more and more problems, sort of culturally down the line, if I can sort of put it in those terms. Yeah, no, I think so. I think that you know we're a hundred episodes in. I think we are quite confident now in terms of the our audience knows how we approach these kinds of conversations and when the you know when it's important to talk about context and politics and and that kind of thing you know when it you know and i think that although there was a moment when he was like you know all the the only time i've been asked about you know the fact that i'm a man is 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 kind of by men but i think it was important that we asked (laughs) it because i think i think there's an expectation from our audience about how we engage with this stuff you know, it, I don't. I don't think necessarily our audience would would want us to just bring in a woman to to feel more comfortable to to do it. But also, mm. you know, that I think that it's. I, th- I think it's important that we acknowledge that we know that that's a question our, our audience might want, or part of our audience might want to to hear him talk about. And I, I think he talked about it really well. And yeah, and we also sort of you know said, oh, we're going to be talking about three films before that conversation about obviously women filmmakers by men you know and i think it's just it's <laughs> that's that's when they're released you know and um, but also like you say that the, the goal is that every you know ultimately uh, i was going to say equality then which i know is a completely loaded and problematic term and i don't you know i don't want to be flippant about it but but the sense that yeah that you know the these are these are great films that are coming out or interesting films that are coming out and they happen to be made by men in this occasion. Um, and then we're talking about women filmmakers in the main and, and hoping that as our audience has kind of come with us this far, they'll, they'll keep, they'll keep going with us. I think it's, I think it's important that we do that work sometimes and maybe make errors and maybe, you know, kind of raise questions and get responses from people about how we do things rather than erring on the side of, trying to play it safe with 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 you know with with kind yeah. of trying to do the right you know i think it's because I, I i never want to get to the point where it's like we are we know how to deal with this we know how to handle this kind of thing because we don't you know yeah. we're just doing our best yeah and I, I think one of the things that just that has come out of this for me and this is in watching the the, the film and going on the website is 
is this sense that the that idea of the of the of the canon and what we go back to whether it's on this podcast or whether it's in teaching you you are responsible for the shaping of that we are as people who teach in universities we are responsible for that shaping and whether it's if you're teaching directly on say a module about identity or women filmmakers that's that's by the by it's the idea that when you are showing a a clip of great filmmaking quote unquote then the spectrum of that is a is so much broader than than we and most people give it credit for but also probably know i mean that's one of the things that this film does is just open up the knowledge of filmmakers and and films that you know it, it's just it's just exciting to engage with never mind yeah. anything else about politics yeah and also what it does is it, it it kind of makes it so there's no real excuse not to use this stuff now it's it's absolutely constructed yeah. to be lifted out and used in yeah. teaching you know yeah. um of any any aspect of filmmaking that you could possibly imagine um like you say like it, it, it there's 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 an example for every type of of kind of teaching every kind of context that you might want in terms of particularly in terms of practice and that's how i was watching it's thinking great you know like i don't have to do any work now <laughs> i don't have to <laughs> don't have to get a clip you know not only do i not have to get a clip i've got the clip but i've also got mark cousins explaining yeah. what's going on in the clip like it's it's absolutely yeah ready made to to change a curriculum um which i think is really exciting and i think that what's exciting now is that there's so many examples of that you know open source there was a great kind of feminist film studies manifesto that, that was sort of did the rounds um recently oh no um, a feminist film curriculum which was the same thing was like yeah you know you you can no longer say oh i i don't know where to find this stuff or i don't know what you know like there's a website with every clip and every filmmaker yeah. listed for you know there's no there's no excuse not to not to get on board um and really really kind of embrace embrace this cinema um which look you know like we sort of say in the thing it looks and feels just like all the cinema you know and love already it's not yeah <laughs> it's nothing to be scared of and one of the things i wanted to talk to you about that that kind of we, we touched upon in the interview but we didn't get a chance and it wasn't really not that it wasn't appropriate but it's kind of like i don't want to sidetrack into this but that idea that the way in which you look at something from not from a, a position of knowing that identity but actually from not being that identity can give you something can give a, a sort of sense of it something different so like say for example some of the some of the great clips of you know male and um male identity and sort of male relationships come from from female filmmakers in in the film is a clip and there's just this scene of it which is so to me absolutely perfectly encapsulates one of the fraught elements of father-son relationships where the, the father and the son are sat in the car and the, and the father's a very successful surgeon and the son's a little bit of a you know a sort of dweeb and it's it's, it's a clear he's a he's a disappointment to him and, and the son sort of says in the car you know I really want to be like you you're my hero and the father says back to him no no that's not that's just not going to happen is it that's just not going to happen and he doesn't even explain why it's just like obvious because you are you know you are just haven't got the talent of the father and i think that there's a sort of sense in which a lot of sons feel like that about fathers do you know what i mean and the fact that you know i have absolutely you know i can't i would never sort of come to that so well there's no way that a woman could understand or 
explain or explore or film that that scene. Of course, because it's 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 there, but it just captures the authenticity of that relationship so much. And I think it speaks to a little bit to the way Mark has sort of approached this film as a whole. As yeah, he he when he said in the interview, you know, we're we're a little bit too obsessed of writing what we know or talking about what we know. Actually, we should make, be making the effort to look or analyse or film or explore what we don't know. Yeah, I think, you know, that's that definitely feels up for discussion, debate, tearing down at the moment. You know, it, it feels like we're in a time where that is very much on the agenda. Who gets to who gets to say what and who gets to tell what story. And I can understand it from from a kind of a broad historical perspective. Um because I think that when I think there's a there is a history of that privilege being abused by white, you know, male screenwriters, directors, whatever. Yeah. But I just I find it really problematic because like you say, when you're when you're saying you have to write from your own experience, it will limit the stories that women are able to tell um uh, unless it's applied unilaterally on the recent bonus episode we released with hannah woodhead we talked about that you know that uh, part of the underlying anger is that what people don't want is white men to tell stories about white men anymore so because we've seen enough or whatever so it's like well if we say that you have to write from your own experience but also we're kind of we don't want to see these kind of stories then it it creates space for more voices and for different you know, but it, it limits those voices in terms of what they're able to do and the focus of their their storytelling. Um, you know, and as Mark says in the, you know, some women, you know, Chantal Ackerman want to be seen as women feminist filmmakers. Yeah. And some don't. Some just want to be filmmakers who, who are allowed to make any kind of films. And you look at the films of Antonia Bird, you know, his his great friend, and that you know, she made a film about cannibals with Guy Pearce and Robert Carlyle, <laughs> yeah. which is brilliant. You know, yeah. but. So what you're saying, that, that that's that's nowhere near her experience. Um, I'm assuming she wasn't a cannibal, um, but I don't know. Do you know. But, you know, I think that once you get into that conversation, it, it starts to come away and it needs more nuance and it needs more a, a more careful discussion because, yeah, it, it's so much of so much of the great cinema that is out there that we love is is the cinema of outsiders looking in, you know, be that. Emma Gray's in Hollywood in the 30s, 40s, you know, kind of making these films about America yeah. as immigrants, you know, be that transnational cinema forced movement of people, um, you know, engaging in countries, be that women making films about men. You know, Catherine Bigelow's Point Break is a great example of, a, yeah, you know, yeah. a film that really understands male psyche and, and kind of bonding um, and homoerotic kind of tensions and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, I, I, it's... And that's what's great about this documentary is it is the the sheer breadth is a, is a is it's not only a kind of justification for writing outside your experience and making films outside your experience, um, but also like how to do that um, and that kind of empathy and curiosity uh, and respect is is kind of are the key touchstones of of how you do that well. Um, and hopefully what that'll do is is kind of raise the stakes and the standards of what people watch and engage with outside you know um and uh and kind of what they expect to see from from you know any filmmaker kind of making a film that's not directly about their own experience um yeah it's uh 
It's a big question, and it's one that is feels like it's being asked a lot at the moment. And I do completely empathise with with the fact that there are so many representations that are lazy and disrespectful and not thought not thoughtful at all. Um, but it shouldn't stop the 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 ability to to do it because when it's done well, it's like you say, it's kind of remarkable. To be fair, when you when you're talking about the idea of of you know the criticism of of you know, there's just white men. We don't want white male, or you know, the, the, the criticism that there are too many white male stories out there. I think it's e- even to the point of of sort of saying, well, I, I don't. You've got to nuance that even further. It's I think it's the same stories over and over again, and the same type of problematic masculinity that they produce, rather than just. I would hope so, anyway, because if you just say, here's yeah, even if it's white men who are the you know the target of you know, rightly, a lot of criticism, you know, in terms of representation and, and broader cultural aspects, for sure. But if you just say, OK, that's it, stop talking, that, you know what I mean, that that becomes slightly problematic. So it's, I think it's, it's a sort of hoping for an engagement with that history, but also going forward, a, a change in that kind of representation and obviously a kind of broader change in the film industry for equal, yeah. equal opportunities in that sense, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think I think it's cultural. I just, rest, I just read... Um, a really great Audrey Lord um, collection um, mm. that my wife bought me, and there's you know so many great things in there. But but part of it is about education, you know, and 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 her kind of challenging people who said, "Oh, I I I can't teach the writing of black women because I don't understand that experience," you know. And I but and then her kind of coming back and saying, "But you'll you'll teach Shakespeare and you'll teach Proust, you know. Yeah, yeah, what, yeah. what do you possibly?" And it's just that is it, it's it's a conversation that. Is coming to film now in real terms, but is a, is a is an ongoing conversation that needs to be had about how we how we engage with this stuff. And it is a, yeah, it is about nuance and about well, what do you mean? What do you mean? You know, um, and really opening people up to their own their own biases and their own ideas mm. about you know, well, I I can't possibly engage with that cinema because it doesn't teach me anything. It's like well, you know, mm. um, it's a very narrow way of looking at it, and ultimately it's to your detriment in terms of your experience which is you know is sad really because there's so much great stuff out there and and you know just getting back to the sort of crux of the film that that mark has made and the kind of the way he's made it in terms of the focus of being the craft of filmmaking i think it's amazing that the there's so many you know um so many examples of kind of non-western filmmaking that is just you know you you wish you had access to that and i hope one of one of the things that happens on the back of this film is that there is more availability of these films in their entirety because it would just be i mean there's some of the some of the clips are just absolutely spellbinding and you know it, as we sort of talked about that idea of of reaching for the the canonical filmmaker to make the comparison but it's like you know the more we can see those films the more you don't have to do that and you just go mm. go to the to that source and say, oh, here's somebody who's making kind of surrealist filmmaking or formalist or or really interrogating realism or playing around with with documentary and and you want to see those those things happening and sort of and and that would give more that would hopefully push the argument further that we don't you know that you don't separate off there is there are women's films and there are men's films and there are men filmmakers and women filmmakers and they have particular kinds of aesthetic proclivities let's say yeah absolutely um and it was encouraging when he sort of said that 
there'd already been moves based on this to introduce some of this stuff back into circulation in, in, in kind of good form, which is which is exciting. Awesome. Great. Well, well done for setting that up. Thanks very much to everyone concerned, of course, to Mark and to the BFI. And and yeah, and really to, to everyone probably who participated in the in, in the film. I mean, God, what a, what a great lineup of, of voices and, and, and films. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, kind of a, a treasure trove of, of, of great stuff, um, or, like you say, in terms of the, the narrators uh, of the project and uh, and the clips and the, the films that are included. Yeah, well done to, to everyone involved. And uh, you can see the film um, from Monday the 18th. It's available on Blu-ray, uh, which and the Blu-ray also includes a wonderful kind of 12-minute video essay on the making of the film, which is well worth checking out. Um, and then also it's released... Um, in five parts over five weeks on the BFI player from Monday the 18th as well. So um, broken down into into a nice bite-sized hour and a half, two-hour chunks there, probably two-and-a-half-hour chunks. Um, and also, just as a note, there's um, another kind of group that we've done work with in the past, Reclaim the Frame and Bird's Eye View, are hosting an event next week with Mark talking about it. So if you've been following their amazing um events with uh, they had kitty green from the assistant and um they've got eliza hitman uh coming Ooh. up um yeah mia 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 bays at reclaim the frame doing some amazing lockdown work so check out mark uh, talking about the project there again next week if you want to um but yeah thanks for thanks for setting up jill at the bfi and uh, yeah thanks dario for yeah for doing it with me it was great fun to do it yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, that will do it for this episode. Neil, do you want to do you want to very quickly trail what's what's coming up on the next episode? So the next episode uh, is another collection, really. Um, so it's the Uncertain Kingdom, which is a British short film uh, project, and uh, which is kind of released in its entirety on June the first. And uh, yeah, at the start of all this kind of weird lockdown uh, period I spoke to some of the filmmakers behind some of those films some were commissioned and some applied uh, for funding and it's a it's a project which looks at kind of Britain in 2019-2020 and uh, it's a really a really great collection of short documentaries narratives and and other kind of experimental work and uh, yeah so I've conducted some interviews with some of the filmmakers there and we'll be sort of spending some time talking about short films on the next episode which is a Another another diversion for us as a podcast, which will be fun. Great. Um, yeah, if you um, want to get any more of our content in the meantime, we have just done a video bonus episode, which you can catch on our Patreon page. We've got a couple of new um, Patreon subscribers, actually. I just wanted to mention Brian Hutton and John Bleasdale. Thanks, guys, for... So for paying to subscribe to our Patreon content, just $2.50 a month for our monthly newsletters and bonus chat. But we did, um, for better or worse, do a, a video chat where we talked about uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire and The Assistant and various other things. Yeah, and it's peaked, it spiked our, our subscription. So maybe video, video bonuses are the way to go. <laughs> maybe they are in the future. Um, but yeah, until next time, you can catch us on uh, social networks, of course. Please get in touch if you've got anything to say about this episode or any of the any of the previous ones. Our hundred would be happy to to discuss them on social media or on the email, uh, cinematologist at gmail.com. The Twitter is at cinematologist, and we're also on Facebook. We'll see you next time, Neil. 
Yeah, thanks, thanks again, buddy. That was great. And thanks generally to our, our audience for their continued support. This has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Staring with blood